Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. So tonight is sort of a continuation of last week, but as always, each class is standalone. So I'm going to just go over a few things from last week to bring us up to speed so that uh, tonight is as fun as possible. Yeah. Um, so last week, what I was, I was driving toward a point that I kind of never made because I, it, you know, things happen, things come up. Um, what I introduced was I had, you know, very quickly I put up my, our usual timeline that's sort of centered around this magical year zero that doesn't exist and goes towards us. Um, and the story begins roughly about 500 BC. This is the time period traditionally given to the Buddha. Right, And what I laid out very quickly, or what it took a little longer than I wanted, but what I was laying out is that the, this early first incarnation of Buddhism that started sometime around 500 BC, somewhere in northeastern India, what we today call India, there was this meditation movement and, that we call Buddhism. And that meditation movement that we call Buddhism was unique because it was both a practice of shamatha, calming, a meditation that's about calming down, and vipassana, usually translated as insight. And I laid out sort of the Buddha's formula for doing shamatha meditation which is in these kind of eight stages of progressively deeper meditation. And then I spoke at length about this idea of vipassana or insight. And what's happening here with Buddhism and Buddhist meditation is that it is both a process of calming down, calming the mind, calming the emotions, calming, 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 which, again, most forms of meditation are shamatha. Most forms of meditation are about calming down. But the Buddha added this layer of insight, which was turning the mind back on, so to speak, directing it towards the mind, towards the self, and doing some analysis. With the goal of vipassana, the goal of insight, being originally, let's call it pranya, Wisdom, but wisdom defined as samyadrishti, right view. Can't stress how important this is for Buddhism. That, yeah, this is. It's about self mastery, being able to calm down being able to not let the world get to you, ideas of immovability or unshakableness, where the things of the world don't stir you. 
you're kind of steadfast in your calmness and in your being. Great, super. Everybody should learn how to do the calming and all of that. But then what Buddhism is sort of about in addition to that calming is this having the right view of the world, seeing it properly. The idea being that right now, or that for most of us, it is, um, that's a word they use a lot, avidya, ignorance is usually how avidya is translated, ignorance. Ignorance is a little, a little tricky of a word, but the idea here is, is that we are normally not seeing this world properly. We're mistaking it for being a certain way. For example, we think things are permanent. The Buddha's Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, are actually things aren't permanent. And that actually, if you look around, you will see that nothing's permanent. You'll see that. It's true. Like, that's what Dharma means is truth, like capital T truth. And one of the things that the Buddha said, one of these truths, is that things are impermanent. And the Buddha didn't want anybody to just buy that on blind faith. He kind of was like, hey, everybody, have you noticed that everything's impermanent? Did you notice that? Let's, let's think about that. With the idea being that if you tap into what's really going on, which is that things are impermanent, you will be in, in, in sync with reality, in tune with reality, in groove with reality, whatever, you know, whatever metaphor you want. But the idea is, is that you won't be ignorant about what's going on. You, you will no longer have avidya, right? Everybody follow me? This is basics, right? And so one of the things that I did at the very end of class was I sort of articulated one example, one very important example of how this plays out in Buddhism. And it comes from the Buddha's very first uh, teaching, from his very first sutra, which was... Um, this way. So, talked at length uh, at the end of class last time about this idea of the self or soul or essence, right? That's this idea of what the, in India, in Sanskrit, they call them Atman, the soul, the essence, the true self. And as I've said many times in many classes before, until the Buddha, Everybody was looking for the true self, the soul, the Atman. They believed that somehow it was in there. And that because of this reincarnation process, oh, like I happen, I happen to be a male this time. I happen to be six foot tall. I happen to be all like this. But there's an essence, the real me, that will potentially transcend this body and pop into a new body. Maybe it was in some other body. But the idea is, is that it's not this. It's not. This is, this is, this is dying. I want to tap into the, the eternal. And so everybody was trying to find that Atman, that true self, with the notion that if you identified with that true self, meaning I'm not going to identify with this fleshy corpse that's dying, 
I'm going to identify with my divine self, that little speck of divinity in me. And if I can find it, and if I can grab it and hold on to that little true self, I could transcend this world, I could be in unity with the divine, all kinds of things could happen if I could find that true self. So everybody was looking for it. The, the Buddha came along, though, and he actually had a realization, a great realization. And his realization is what in Buddhism they call an-atman. <laughs> that there is no atman. It's not that we've missed it. It's not that we can't find it. It's actually that it's not there. And so what the first teaching of the Buddha, the first insight, the first little nugget of wisdom, that first little correct view that the Buddha dropped on everybody was, well, the correct view is to not mistake this for being one thing. I know you have one name. I know everybody has treated you as a single entity, a single being your whole life. I know that. But the Buddha was, is saying, actually, if you look really closely, if you put yourself under the microscope, you will notice, either sooner or later, you will notice that there's actually not an Atman. What the Buddha said is actually there's no Atman. There's actually these five skandhas, um, aggregates. I, don't, I never know how to spell aggregates. So. <laughs> I won't write the English words. <laughs> um, so five skandhas, these five aggregates. That's what's going on here, right? Form, sensations, I will call them perceptions. I do call it conditioning and consciousness. So instead of there being a single entity here, Michael, having an experience. Um, and again, I've spoken at length about the idea of the self as being the receiver of the experiences of our lives. The notion that you've been present your whole life, the notion that you were there when you were a little kid and the notion that you were there as a teenager and the notion that you were there as a young adult and the notion of all of that being you, that's what the Buddha is calling, that's what everybody's calling, a self. The notion that you've been there the whole time. I describe it as the pilot of our life, being somehow between our ears and behind our eyes. We believe there's been a receiver of all these experiences. And that's the self. And that's what everybody was looking for but the wisdom that the Buddha dropped on everybody was that that notion of me that was there the whole time is just that, a notion. A notion being had by an experience. This is an experience. It's not a self, it's not an entity, a soul. This is something that's happening. And that something happening mistakes itself for something. And then clings to itself. And then, oh my God, the suffering from all of that. So the idea here is, is the Buddha said, guess what? There's no Atman. It's Anatman. Zero Atman. Instead, it's five skandhas. Bodily flesh. Matter. Right? 
sensations produced by that matter, meaning sensations produced by your organs, which are made of form. This is, is uh, uh, matter, flesh, uh, stuff. So when they say form, they're not just talking about a nice shape. Uh, by rupa, the word is rupa in Sanskrit, they're talking about anything made of the four great elements, earth, fire, water, and air. That's the traditional definition of rupas. But what they're talking about is stuff. So you are stuff, mainly organs, whether it's the skin and all your other organs. Those organs produce sensations. Those sensations have been trained to divide the world up perceptively into objects. That mind, that, that sort of situation is conditioned by all of its past experiences. And what we call thinking, being consciousness here now, this, this is consciousness. Just one of five elements of ourself. The most important part about all of this is that all five of these skandhas are constantly changing. One moment to the next, one cell at a time, one experience to the next. All five of these are constantly changing. So at no point is there a, a piece of entity that is stationary that you could grab onto and say, no, that's me. That, that, that's it. I got it. The Buddha said you'd actually do yourself better by stop trying to do that. Stop trying to find the self. Be cooler and better at not doing that. That's the idea. Everybody following this. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. No Atman, five skandhas. What does that mean in terms of this initial old school? And remember, I'm laying out, basically I'm doing a repeat of last week, but I'm laying out the earliest form of Buddhism. The earliest form. Basic, basic stuff. The Buddha said, no soul, no Atman, no self. I get it. I get the illusion of it. But he's saying it's just that, an illusion. And that you should get more into this idea of you being these five skandhas momentarily coalescing together. Again, none of these are static. And so again, this is an experience happening. <laughs> when five skandhas get together and start dancing, this is what it's like. <laughs> this thing that we call being, living, experiencing, or whatever, right? Everybody follow me on this. So this was the basic. What I dropped on you, though, is that a few hundred years or so, or at least according to history, by about two, let's just say 250 BC or so, there was this movement in Buddhism, a radical movement in Buddhism, a shift away from the early old school Buddhism. And what replaced it didn't replace it. I, this is the point I need to really carefully drive home. Around sometime between these two years, there was a movement towards what I was calling the Bodhisattva path. The Bodhisattva path is this Again, I'm describing it as sort of a revolution in Buddhism. It's an advancement, a change, something happened. After 250 years of thinking about all this, all this, the insight, the wisdom, all the things the, the Buddha laid out, 
there was a shifter development. The first shift was towards this idea of being a enlightenment being. Sattva means being. Like a being, not existence. And this means enlightenment. So these enlightenment beings. This idea of being ultimately and a bodhisattva is trying to become a Buddha, a fully enlightened being. So this was new. This was new. Be trying to be a Buddha. As I laid out last time, in this early form of Buddhism, the goal was to be an arahat. Someone who did what the Buddha said to do. The Buddha said, Shamatha insight. The Buddha said four noble truths. The Buddha said you are five skandhas. The Buddha said all this. If you did the calming all the way, and if you do the insight training all the way, you could become an arhat. Liberated from your suffering, in nirvana, at peace, tranquility, all of that. But there was this movement towards a bodhisattva, being an enlightenment being that is bound and actually, in a way, trying to reach Buddhahood. Something actually a little beyond arhat. The bodhisattva path was marked by the six paramitas. Usually paramita is translated as perfection. We'll get back to that if we have time. But there are these six practices of the bodhisattva. And this helps see the shift that happens. Um, giving, discipline, uh, I will just call it will, patience, uh, dhyana, and prana. So what I talked about last time is, is that these six things, Practicing dana or giving, practicing moral discipline, practicing determination, zeal, zeal or will, uh, practicing patience, practicing meditation, a certain type of meditation though, and practicing wisdom, pranya, right? These are the practices of the bodhisattva. And what I pointed out last time or tried to point out is that giving, this was never part of the original Buddhist program, if only because the original Buddhist program was to be homeless and, and you didn't own anything. You received dana. You had nothing to give, per se, per se. And so the emphasis on dana, giving, this is sort of shows that the bodhisattva path is this more socially engaged way of being Buddhist. It's um, the Bodhisattva path sort of, sort of critiques old early Buddhism for being too centered on the self and basically being like a self-help cult. Both a cult in the sense of like gurus and hierarchies and pay, payoff schemes and all kinds of crazy stuff. So a cult and then a self-help cult. Like how to make oneself better. That's definitely not part of the original Buddhist program as far as I understand it. And apparently the Bodhisattva path people thought so too. 
they thought this was all too like centered on the self. Oh, I'm going to go in a cave, meditate for the rest of my life. Yeah, that'll do a lot of good for everybody. It'll do a lot of good for me to go off into a cave and meditate for years, but it's not going to do good for everybody else. Yeah. So is it sort of like the idea was that it was all well and good, it was fine, but then it became corrupted, and so there it, had to be a corrective exactamente, to exactly, exactly. And so what happens with the bodhisattva path is the bodhisattva path gets tacked onto the old path. It's not a replacement of it. In fact, what happens is, is that, let's move on to the second paramita, the second perfection, discipline, shila in Sanskrit. Shila, or discipline for the arhat, for the old school Buddhism, was 250 rules that the Buddha laid out. Walk like this, talk like this, carry your bowl like this, don't have sex, don't do this, don't do that. And if you followed all 250 rules, that was doing your discipline, shila. The Bodhisattva Shila, though, is to, yes, obviously observe those 250 rules, but let's tack 58 more on top of that that include things explicitly like vegetarianism. So what you should know is, is that the early Buddhist school, it was about begging. And sure enough, if somebody put meat in your begging bowl, you ate it. In fact, you were probably stoked, frankly. All right, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying like that. The idea was there was no prohibition against it. And so, bam, you know, if there was no prohibition against it and there was certainly records of them eating it, it must have been a good day to get a turkey leg in your bowl kind of a thing, right? The Bodhisattva discipline, though, is, yes, the, all the old school stuff, of course, but then these extra rules called the Bodhisattva vows, of which there are 48 minor, 10 like major um, extra rules that are much more about things like vegetarianism, which is my engagement with the world. These, the 250 rules of this are about my engagement with myself. Don't masturbate. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's all about how I deal with myself. The Bodhisattva's discipline is about the other in that way. Uh, will or determination, as it's called. Actually, I got these mixed up. Number three is patience. Kshanti. And this is will. And so again, patience, kshanti, the, the, the paramita of patience, is not a precursor to meditation. I have heard people teach patience as a precursor to meditation that it's like oh no i'm like i'm so patient that i just slip into meditation that's not actually quite what it means it could mean that if you were in if if whatever but the real defining characteristic of patience is receiving uh you know people calling you names people beating on you people whatever it is receiving negativity and being patient with it Ultimately, being compassionate towards the person that's reaping it on you, right? That's a pretty, I mean, it's, I guess it's a tall order, but it's certainly not any taller than turning the other cheek. It's not any taller than those recommendations from some other enlightened people. So the idea is that patience isn't just being able to be still, it's actually being able to deal with assholes. That's part of it, is that idea. So again, 
these three are actually these all about how a bodhisattva interacts with the world. Then you get into uh, virya, determination, zeal. The notion here is that these, the reason why perfection isn't very good is because it makes it seem like you could actually perfect these things. It's not actually what this word is about. Paramita means, uh, I like to sometimes, sometimes, uh, translate paramita as deliverance. Deliverance has a lot of problems because it has all this Christian baggage that it brings with it. But the word, the actual Sanskrit word, does have the sense of delivering, like from here over there, something that gets you from over here to over there. And so deliverance by giving, deliverance through patience, for me is like, yeah, that's what paramita means. But again, it has such Christian overtones, I don't, I keep that in close confidence that, <laughs> that you should use that. But I think you all know what I mean. These are all techniques to enlightenment, techniques to full enlightenment, Buddhahood. And so the idea is, is that you can get there simply by giving. But yeah, 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 sure, give your stuff away. But you keep going, keep going. In the Bodhisattva path, you don't just give stuff away, you give it all away. I'm talking about you give it all up. In a way, this giving, the Bodhisattva giving, this is like Islam. This is like surrender. If you don't know what Islam means, this word means to surrender. That's, that's a whole religion based on the idea of just saying, I, I can't, not me. Not by my will. That is, to Islam, is to recognize you're kind of helpless or something like that. And so this idea of just totally surrendering, that's giving in the Bodhisattva. Not just giving your stuff. You give it all up. And I'll, I'll get a little deeper into that in a moment. Uh, certainly you can get enlightened and fully enlightened through discipline, observing all these rules, observing all the discipline. Patience, just by all of that, sure. But the idea here is, is that through will or determination, you can do it just through will or determination. And I, I kind of, in the past, I have likened this to like maybe like an, like an Olympic athlete sort of kind of. Giving is about giving your time to it. Okay, you have to give your time to it. Discipline, obviously. Patience, we could talk about that in a second. But... The idea of will or determination is, is you can think about the power of the human spirit in that, like, if you wanted to run, like, a mile under four minutes, yeah, you got to train and all that, but there's a certain way in which pure determination could almost get you there, if you know what I mean. Like, there's a certain belief that the power of the human being is so powerful that you could jump right over the discipline and the training and all of that if you really wanted it. Or you can incorporate will and determination into your six practices. Meditation, dhyana, of course, is a certain kind of meditation that is much more associated with shamatha. And then finally, pranya, our wisdom, which is what brings you here tonight. That's what we're going to get to. But I wanted to outline all of this again, because all we did was, this is what we did last week. So we've got to touch new ground tonight. But the reason why I wanted to go over this again is to make one point. This bodhisattva path is 
synonymous with what people call Mahayana, right? The great vehicle. Um, the point I want to make is that by 250 BC, not in 250 BC, but by 250 BC, the Bodhisattva path and this revolution in Buddhism that had shifted the focus away from the self and the self-help cult and all of that, had branched out to society, become more socially engaged. Uh, the Bodhisattva path allows for lay practice. There's no lay Buddhism in the old school Buddhism. If you're not a monk or a nun doing the real work, then all you're doing is helping the people that are doing the real work. If you make offerings to monk and nuns, it's so that they are doing the real work. That's the notion in old school Buddhism. The bodhisattva path is what allows for lay Buddhist practice. It's what allows for a lot, a lot, a lot. And so here it is. Here's the point. By 250 BC, this is Buddhism. What eventually will be called so Theravada Buddhism that is around today. You can do uh, Vipassana retreats in Theravada centers, things like that. There was a revival of Theravada Buddhism in the mid-1800s, basically, not too long ago. There was a revival of this type of Buddhism for a number of different reasons, and I can't get into them too much. It has a lot to do with uh, Buddhism basically entirely dying out in India, and then a pocket from Sri Lanka of these practitioners brought the ordination process back to India, and so it kind of took off. This is all in the 1800s. This is all very recently. That modern, modern Theravada movement in India and a certain uh, Thai forest tradition that was sort of rediscovered or discovered by the British and French again in the 1800s. All of this is a revival of Theravada. And we in America have gotten a heavy dose of this as if this is Buddhism, original, pure, and the only one. Even in, in, as a historian, I, I swear to you, even in the days, back in the days, talking to, I'm talking 250 BC, even back in the days, Theravada was only one of 18 types of Buddhism you could choose from. And it was the smallest of them. It was not the most popular, all right? It was considered very conservative, very rigorous, very hard for an elite few, not for everybody, with no lofty goal of saving the world. It was about saving yourself, right? After this gets invented, the rest of history is about this type of Buddhism. When it goes to China, it becomes Zen. When it goes to Tibet, it becomes Tibetan Tantra craziness. Um, if you want to talk about Pure Land Buddhism in Japan, if you want to talk about basically any type of Buddhism you want to talk about, you have to understand this. It's what it's founded on. Okay, And keep in mind, though, that this is founded on this. You don't lose this with Mahayana. A lot of people 
think these are at odds, and it's the, it's the unfortunate way, quote, Mahayana, and quote, Theravada, it's the unfortunate way these have been presented to us in the West, that they are in opposition to each other like the Catholics and the Protestants. I've talked about this in the past. This presentation of Mahayana and Theravada as the Protestant Catholics going at it is not true. It was invented by a bunch of Protestants and Catholics. Who, it's the only way they can understand religion is through sectarian violence and strife and all of that. Couldn't imagine a Protestant and a Catholic living in a monastery together happily. But it's exactly what happens in India, China, Tibet, Japan, everywhere. Is Buddhism, Buddhists of different types living harmoniously side by side, sharing their totally crazy different beliefs. It's amazing. So, you don't lose any early Buddhism by getting into the Mahayana stuff at all. And again, if you want to understand any modern Buddhism in the world today, from Zen to you name it, it would behoove you to start understanding this Bodhisattva path, quote-unquote Mahayana, that's founded on the doctrine of emptiness. Which, that's like the rest of the night. We've got a whole hour on emptiness. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So, any questions? Super quick. Uh, yeah. You said meditation, uh, dhyana, is, is primarily samatha? Samatha, yeah. Okay. Dhyana, which usually, or not usually, but can be translated as absorption, and the four dhyanas, doing the dhyanas, that is shamatha. So shamatha just means calming, of which there are many techniques. One technique is to do dhyana, if that makes sense. And, yep. So countries like Thailand um, one associates with? With Theravada Buddhism. Uh, were there, has there been sort of a, No, no, no. They're, they're Theravadan. They're totally Theravadan. Um, it's helpful to keep in mind that in Thailand, where it is preserved, young men usually go off sometime between 18 and 25 and do two years as a monk before you, you start your career. That's Buddhism in Thailand. Not for, it's usually not advocating lifelong monasticism at all. Um, I mean, if you, you know, we could be here all night, but if you really want to get into it, if you go in, like as I did, go to Thailand, it's like, oh, they're chanting the Heart Sutra. Oh, they're talking about bodhisattvas. So there's been a tremendous amount of Mahayana influence on what is today Theravada. In fact, it's very hard to find pure Theravadan outside of people that are trying to do pure Theravadan, if you know what I mean. It's, a, it's yeah. My question was similar. Also, in addition to what you said, where Theravada and Buddhism in a place like Thailand is heavily influenced by Mahayana, in terms of the Theravada that was brought to the West, it's also heavily influenced by Mahayana, right? Yes, yes. And I really, this is, um, and you're all helping, the questions are great. The point, you know, is that I want to make is that, yes, there is this little thing called Theravada, but... Even if like, you want to understand what that is, you should understand all of this. Like this, The notion that there's some pure original Buddhism and that it's held in Theravada is just what I want to dispel. 
is just not true. And as I've said before, the desire for that is problematic. Right? The desire for the earliest, oldest, most original, like, oh, I won't read it if it's not old and original. That's problematic from a certain Buddhist perspective, right? I'm talking about, you know, sutras that are, you know, way older than the Bible, full of wisdom. They just don't happen to be maybe 200 years older, right? So, okay, so everybody's got the idea here. This is why I spend so much time talking about emptiness and Mahayana and all of that. Because for me, if you really want to understand Buddhism and any kind of Buddhism, especially if you want to understand Zen or these like major forms of Buddhism, because this is not major at all, by the way. This is like, you know, there's more adherence, <clears throat> there's more adherence to random African cults than there are to Theravada. So it's representative of very little, whereas this is representative of very much. All of Japanese culture is founded on the notion of emptiness, the Mahayana notion of emptiness. Like the whole culture, not to mention Tibet as well, all of these. So that's why I want to get into it. Let's do it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> here's what happened, though. So does anybody know, get this idea of Bodhisattva? Uh, one last point. In the Mahayana tradition, originally Bodhisattvas were these hardcore, I'm going for Buddhahood, I don't want to be in your cult, um, like, you know, idea. And so... There's a few different ways to understand a bodhisattva. One is an enlightenment seeker, a hardcore enlightenment seeker. And the idea in the Mahayana tradition is, is if, if anything I told you about this is interesting, and you're like, well, I'm, gonna, I'm interested in trying that, you're a bodhisattva. You're seeking enlightenment now. If, that's, if you're like, oh, that's all very interesting. So you could be a bodhisattva, a bodhisattva could be one of these dudes way back in the day that was these hardcore mountain-dwelling, forest-dwelling meditators. But then what happens in Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, is that the bodhisattva becomes this ideal, not unlike the Buddha, that then gets represented as, this is a bodhisattva called Maitreya. This bodhisattva is the most advanced bodhisattva, actually, because... Maitreya will soon be the next Buddha. That's the idea be behind this person, right? Uh, that little guy over there, that is Shakyamuni Buddha. And originally, the term Bodhisattva was reserved for Shakyamuni, Siddhartha, before he was the Buddha. So originally, Theravada, old school Buddhism, they talked about Bodhisattvas. They talked about that guy before he was the Buddha. He was seeking enlightenment. He was an enlightenment seeker. He was a bodhisattva. What happens is, is that, that, that his ideal and his bodhisattvahood becomes a model for everybody's behavior. So everybody kind of get bodhisattvas pretty wild. And also in modern Buddhism, bodhisattvas are like angels. You can pray to them. They can incarnate you in front of you, get you out of trouble. Uh, um, um, I'll talk more about bodhisattvas in, in a moment. Questions, sir? Yeah. Um, the, the other 17 uh, schools yes. um, that they don't practice, like, should we just not think about those? Or, like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, like, is it, when we think of Mahayana as like, the largest umbrella of different practices and traditions. Yeah. Okay. 
No, well, let me, uh, one of, you know what I mean? I'm, no, I, actually, I didn't hear you, I'm sorry, please. Oh, I'm just asking, like, should we not think about the other 17 traditions and just think of Mayana as this big umbrella of whatever, sutras and shit and stuff that, that people are thinking about? That's more or less what I'm getting at. Okay. Definitely. But I would like to note, the most popular of the 18 sects was called the Maha... Sangikas. What that word means is maha, maha, maha means great, big, gigantic, super duper, actually is how I translate maha, is super duper. Super duper, and then a sangika, actually the root of this, this is like some fancy Sanskrit conjugation, but the root of this is sangha. The great Sangha, the Maha Sangha. These were the folks that were like, no, no, lay people, boo, you know, monks, nuns, lay people. It's the Maha Sangha. We're all in this together, guys. Uh, most scholars think that the this came out of the Maha Sanghikas, which were one of the 18. Mm. One reason maybe not to totally ignore them. So they, these were the the uh, whatever, the populace, they were the, the majority of them. These were the tiny little conservative that were telling people that you can't carry salt around in a rhinoceros horn. <laughs> and if you carry salt around in a rhinoceros horn, you're out. Mm. <laughs> Seriously, like they were really steeped in these rules. And I'm talking about the minor, minute, tiny rules. I don't know how you know, wise it is to latch on to them since so many centuries have put them back. Said, no, that's some like outdated sexist stuff. This is like very sexist, very hierarchical, whatever. The Mahasangikas and then the Mahayana, they're like, I mean, if you want a philosophy of, of uh, equality, there you go. All right, all right, moving forward. Here we go, because this was it. We know what a Bodhisattva is. We know what the skandhas are, right? Here's the thing, one last point. If there's no self, but actually five skandhas, right? So Buddha told us, no, no, there's actually these five skandhas going on. What does that mean about the self? Well, very quickly, it means it's empty. And the language, and I'm gonna, don't worry, I'm gonna really articulate emptiness tonight. But the notion is, oh, so what we might want to call illusory or something like that, right? Where it's real because I think it's like, no, it's me, Michael, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's the illusion, yeah. But then what is that? If this five skanda thing is true, what does that mean about the self? It means it's empty. Don't worry, I'm going to explain that further, but I just want you to see that relationship. No self, five skandhas, meaning the self is empty, right? So here's what happened. Oh, oh, and also last week, I was introducing this body of literature, a bunch of new sutras that appeared in the world. Maybe they were discovered in a magical underwater world of shape-shifting serpent people. <laughs> Maybe they were just waiting around. Who knows, right? But there was this body of sutras 
Some were big, some were little, and they all dealt with pranya, wisdom. All right? And last time I read from what some scholars to believe, believe to be the original of these sutras, um, and it's the Pranya Paramita Sutra in 8,000 lines. It's eight, an 8,000 line long poem. Uh, you should know that there's a 100,000 line version, there's 10,000 line version, there's 500 line versions. I talked about the, this one, the so-called Diamond Sutra, which is actually the Pranya Paramita Sutra in 300 lines. But diamond is the Vajra Sutra. And some of you know this sutra very well because we've read through almost every chapter of it uh, last year. Um, I'm big into these sutras. But here's what happened. Is everybody ready? Questions first and then, yeah. Yeah, that's just a little bit foreign to me, the idea that you can have something that I guess it's the same thing but it's in versions that are 10 times as long as the other versions. So it's just kind of like, a, I, I, I'm a little bit confused. Oh, no. <laughs> what are we going to do? Um, so <laughs> Is it like the condensed, abridged version of a book or something? So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, I'm going to read to you. Uh, yeah, so this is one version. I am going to read to you from the Pranya Paramita Sutra in 14 lines. Is everybody ready? This is it. This is it, by the way. Like, if the class has an arc, we're at the, <laughs> the peak of it. All right? This is the Pranayaparamita Sutra in 14 lines, otherwise known as the Heart Sutra. So, anybody heard of the Heart Sutra? So get ready. It might make a little more sense now. Because this is what the Heart Sutra says. And it comes right out the gate and says, bam, the Bodhisattva named Avilokiteshvara. There used to be some Avilokiteshvaras in here. There's not any more. we got to get an Avilokiteshvara in here. Um, Avilokiteshvara is this, one of these really kind of famous mythological bodhisattvas, but the bodhisattva of compassion, actually. Um, big player in a lot of sutras. So here's the sutra. The bodhisattva called Avilokiteshvara, while practicing the profound pranyaparamita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty, thus overcoming all suffering. Shariputra, who is a monk, form is no different from empty. Empty, no different from form. Sensation, perceptions, conditioning, consciousness are also like this. Shariputra, this is the emptiness of all dharmas, they neither arise nor cease, are neither, are neither defiled nor pure, and neither increase nor decrease. So for this reason, within emptiness, there is no form, sensation, perception, volition, or consciousness. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. 
No sight, sound, scent, taste, touch, or thought. No seeing, even no thinking. No ignorance, nor end of ignorance. Even no aging and death, nor an end to aging and death. No suffering, its origin, the cessation, or path. No wisdom and no attainment. And because nothing is attained, bodhisattvas maintain pranyaparamita. Then their heart is without hindrance, and since without hindrance, without fear. Escaping upside-down, dreamlike thinking and completely realizing nirvana. All Buddhas of all times maintain pranyaparamita, thus attaining anuttara samyak sambhoti. Hence, no, pranyaparamita is the all-powerful mantra, the great enlightening mantra, the unexcelled mantra, the unequaled mantra, able to dispel all suffering. This is true, not false. Therefore, proclaim the pranyaparamita mantra. Recite the mantra thus. Om gate gate paragate parasamgate bodhisvaha. Boom. <laughs> That's the Heart Sutra in context. Here's, so everybody get it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, super, it's super simple. The Buddha came along and said, guess what, everybody? There's no Atman. There's actually five skandhas. And then a little while later, the Bodhisattva Adilokiteshvara was sitting around and was like, but wait a minute. Doesn't this illusion breaking down to constituent elements apply to each of these constituent elements as well? Are not the skandhas also as empty as the original self was? Boom. That's, that's it. That's Mahayana. That's what happened. The Buddha said there's no self. There's an illusion of a self. So there's five skandhas. Deal with it. And then people were sitting around going, well, no, but if what the Buddha said is true about all that, this and that, does that apply to everything? And when the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara was like, doesn't that apply to everything? Boom. Enlightened. That's the idea. The radical application of this idea of emptiness to the skandhas themselves, to Buddhism, to the Dharma, to the Buddha, to the Sangha, everything. A radical application of emptiness to everything. That's Mahayana. And that's the meaning of the Heart Sutra, if you didn't know. That's all it's saying. It's saying the most important thing that a hundred thousand lines of poetry, the most important thing that it had to say that could be distilled down to a few sentences is that form is no different from emptiness. Uh, memorizing this and chanting it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. That's why so many Buddhists in the modern world Chant this. In fact, if you didn't know, the Heart Sutra is bar none the most popular sutra in the world. Maybe because it's so short. Maybe because it's so profound. I don't know. But this is it. This is Buddhism in the modern world. Tibetan Buddhism, bam, Heart Sutra. Zen Buddhism, bam, Heart Sutra. 
Chinese, all kinds of Chinese Buddhism, morning, noon, and night. You know, they do the whole, I mean, I could do the whole thing. I had to do the whole thing. So morning, noon, and night, Buddhists chant this. Om gate gate paragate parasamgate. That's a magic spell to dispel evil and stuff. This, it, goes, it goes wild, the sutra. But I just, I just want you to understand that the message of it, which for many people, you know, in many traditions, people chant this in languages they don't even understand. A lot of folks will either chant this in Sanskrit, but they don't know Sanskrit. They'll chant it in Japanese, even though they don't know Japanese. I chanted it in Chinese before I learned Chinese. Um, so there's a lot of people who say that the power of this is just this, in the sound of it. Well, I don't deny that. I, I'm not one to deny that. But I'm also the type of person that doesn't like to gloss over the profundity of it. Because the message of this thing is redonkulous. To, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, we've got a little more time to get into it, but the message of this is crazy. Why is this called heart sutra? So, two reasons. One reason, so nobody knows, and it's a, a matter of scholarly debate about where the heart sutra comes from. I, this is my translation, and I wrote a little essay about it, so I'm qualified to tell you a little bit about the, 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 the competing arguments. Heart sutra, um, most people will say because it, you memorize it, it's so small you memorize it and carry it around in your heart. You know it by heart. We use this expression, I know it by heart. In Chinese, they use the same expression. And this is, if, well, I don't want to get too, 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 too into it, but you should know that there's no Sanskrit version of the Heart Sutra originally. There is now, but the oldest known version of the Heart Sutra is in Chinese, and most people think it was written in Chinese and got transported back to India where they trans- reverse translated it from Chinese into Sanskrit. And then it came to modernity as if it were originally Sanskrit. But again, I can tell you it wasn't. In fact, the reason why it seems to have been called the Heart Sutra is that it was originally written by a guy named Kumarajiva. Not a Chinese guy, actually, but he got uh, taken to China, learned Chinese. He, Kumarajiva, is very famous for translating these sutras, the 8,000-line version, the 100,000-line version, Kumarajiva is the first, well, not the first, but a first guy to translate these into Chinese from Sanskrit. He had a bunch of students. His students put together a, a cheat sheet, a crib notes on the, on the Pranyaparamita Sutra, a little cheat sheet. This is the cheat sheet. And the reason why it was the Heart Sutra is like, well, this is all you need to know. This is the heart of it. If you just memorize this, you're good. You don't have to memorize all those. So the real scholarly origin of this is that it's a tiny little cheat sheet, Cliff Notes version of the Pranibharamita Sutra. That uh, Kumarajiva uh, wrote this in, or his students put it together, we don't know, in, well, three in three 20, 323, I think, 323 A.D. So that's a long time ago. That's a long time ago. Um, in, six, in the 660s, so about 300 years later, a guy named Xuanzang rewrote it 
into this version, which is the version. And then so his 660 version became everywhere, hugely popular as a sutra, not as a little cheat sheet, but as an actual poem embodying the teachings of the Buddha. So that's that. But it gets smaller. Because what I came here to do tonight is to read to you the blessed perfection of wisdom, the mother of all Buddhas, in one letter. And then hopefully try to articulate how this is. And then have fun. Thus have I heard. At one time, the Lord, the Buddha, dwelt at Rajgriha on the vulture's peak together with a large congregation of monks, 1,250 in all, and with many hundreds of thousands of nayutas, of kutis, of bodhisattvas. Kutis and nayutas are huge numbers. Billions. I I often translate nayuta as gajillion because in Sanskrit, they're not real numbers. They're like literally like gajillion. How much is a gajillion? It is big, right? (laughs) So, Hundreds of thousands of gajillions of, of zillions of bodhisattvas. At that time, the Lord addressed the venerable Ananda and said, Ananda, do receive for the sake and for the sake and happiness of all beings this perfection of wisdom in one letter. <laughs> Thus spoke the Lord. The venerable Ananda the large congregation of monks, the assembly of bodhisattvas, and the whole world with its gods, men, and asuras rejoiced at the teaching of the Lord. So, if you didn't catch it, the sutra goes... And what that is, is... Actually, I brought this in. This is a beautiful Japanese rendition edition of the sutra I just read you. Where'd you go? You're right there. Very front. So, I'll pass it around, hold it up. What you're looking at here is the Sanskrit letter A, and actually, when I read that, what it said was, and then the boot the Buddha or the Lord or whatever said in quotes, and it just has the letter A. That's it. I read it aloud as, because this Sanskrit ah, if you will, which is on a lotus flower coming out of this lotus flower, which is coming out of a vajra, which is this thing. I didn't get to talk about that too much, which is coming out of a lotus flower. This kind of infinite regression leads to this which is, again, the Sanskrit letter A, sort of. But I've described this in the past, that Sanskrit is kind of interesting in that if you have this A, but then you were to do a little oo and then an mm, I didn't have enough room, but that is the oo, and then that one would be the mm part of it. This would then be aum. That's how you would pronounce it, because it would be the a but then the uh and then the um, right? So I've only taken a couple semesters of Sanskrit. <laughs> but I, I know enough to 
know that if you don't have the ooh and you don't have the mm and you just have this, it's not an, an A yet. Because it could be an A, it could be an ah, it could go a few different ways. So it's not aspirated yet to speak linguistically. So what this sutra is, is an unaspirated A, which is, it doesn't have an ah yet, is it? It's just the, uh, it's just the initial, okay? And that is the whole 100,000, even the million line version of this sutra down to just an unaspirated, that's it. It all boils down to that. How could that be? How could that be? Um, here, I'll pass that around if you care to look at it. Um, so, my goodness. I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to do a translation of that sutra into English. So, real English, not uh, this. Um. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Before I do that. I need to make this clock disappear again. And I needed to make the clock disappear in order to set up a few ideas. So if you've seen this before, my, this magic trick of making the clock disappear, bear with me, all right? Um, so here is an object, yes, <laughs> right? And we would potentially give this object a name, would we not? Let us say, for the sake of argument, let's just agree to call this a clock, yeah? So here we have an object with a name. There's the clock, right? And so the question becomes, let's think of this clock like the self, like the Atman. And what we want to know is, in this self of a clock, we want to know what's essential, right? And I, as I've talked before, is this essential to the clock, right? You get rid of that, right? Are the batteries essential? They're essential, but are these batteries essential, right? They're, the batteries aren't essential, right? What part of this is, is the clock, right? And my magic trick to sort of show this idea goes like this. So let's say we agree that this is an object and we agree that it's the clock. And I'm gonna call it the Dharma Collective Clock, right? San Francisco Dharma Collective Clock, right? Here's how this game goes. When this, let's just say this little part, this little uh, part fell off and so it broke and it won't fit back on there. And so I contact Radio Shack in China, and they say, oh, yeah, just send us your little part, and we'll, we'll, fix, we'll send you a new one. Great. So we send this back to China, and we get a brand new one. And we go, oh, great. And we, boom. And then this little button 
falls off and breaks. And so we call our Radio Shack again, and we're like, hey, and they're like, just send us the button. And we send them the button, we get the new button, pam. This little guy breaks, this guy breaks, we replace the batteries. Um, and eventually what happens is, is that every single part of this clock over the years and years breaks. And we send it back to Radio Shack in China, and they send us a new part, and we put it on here, right? At the end of the year, we've replaced every part of this clock. It's entirely new parts, right? But it's still the San Francisco Dharma Collective clock, right? Right? Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because the repairman from Radio Shack, he shows up. And what we didn't know is that he was preserving and holding on to all the parts we sent back to Radio Shack. And he walks in and says, hey guys, I've got your clock. The question becomes, who has the San Francisco Dharma Collective clock? Because I've got this one, and he walks in with that one. But that one's made of all the old parts of this one. So he has kind of a little, slightly more legitimate claim to the clock. So what am I holding if he's got the clock? Wait, who's got the clock? Right? So that's a long, elaborate shaggy dog story or whatever to get us to think about what are we calling a clock? What are we calling an object? You guys follow me on this? So here's yourself. And the Buddha said, guess what, clock? You just think you're a clock. You're actually a bunch of parts. Skandhas coalescing together <clears throat> to make you. And <clears throat> just as I said that every day cells are dying and being replaced, and every day perceptions are changing, and every day consciousness is changing, that's just like parts of you being sent off to Radio Shack. And eight, ten years later, a brand new you walks in the room. And the old you sitting there going, which one's me? This configuration of skandhas or that configuration of skandhas? Right? So what happens is, is that the, the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara says, wait a minute, if the clock is empty, isn't this empty too? Isn't this made of a bunch of parts that I could start taking apart and reveal that there's no little plastic thing either? And then once I take this apart and that apart and that apart and I'm left with just that, I could start breaking that apart. <laughs> and this is actually just the way modern Western science thinks in terms of everything can, can keep being broken down and broken down and broken down. The problem is, is that Buddhism didn't, or no, it's not a problem. The thing is, Buddhism didn't have a problem not stopping, if that makes sense. Western science is still determined to find that quark. We're going to find that quark, and then we're going to say, boom, Science can now rest safely on this quirk. Whereas Buddhism was very quickly saw that it was, that the world and everything in it is like that, that proverbial sweater. That you take the thread and pretty soon there's no sweater left. You start taking this, 
this apart, pretty soon you realize, oh my God, there was not a clock there to begin with. So what is there? What is there at 8.06? What is there? Before, well, before we get too deep into that, does everybody get my analogy, the Avalokiteshvara? So like the Buddha just destroyed the clock. And then Avalokiteshvara said, well, what about all the other things? Doesn't it go for them too? The, the Mahayana answer is yes, it all goes for that. And you, you will keep going and keep going and keep going. Things will keep breaking down and breaking down and breaking down. So on the one hand, emptiness is revealed, the emptiness of anything, clock, bowl, self, table, chair, the emptiness of any one thing is revealed by its being able to be broken down into constituent parts. That is like the most, like the simplest baseline definition of emptiness is that things are compounded and therefore there's not one thing there right? It's easy to call this Michael, but there's so much going on here. So many hair follicles and organs, and it's like how many different parts are there? Infinity, right? Okay, so that's the most baseline emptiness, is just that everything can be broken down, and then even the parts can be broken down, and even those parts of the parts can be broken down. So you'll never find it. You'll never find that last thing to hold on to. So that's emptiness. But there's a kind of um, a deeper emptiness, a deeper understanding of emptiness. And it has to go to do with that question I said, okay, then what is it? Like, if it's not a clock, then what is it? Or what is that clock? And one way to talk about what is a clock or what, what's going on there, what's a chair, these things, you know, whatever, nouns, clocks, chairs, a lot of those are based on use value. So a chair, for example, is defined as you can sit on it, right? If something, if I was like, hey, have a seat. And <laughs> uh, no, that's not a chair. That's an impalement device, right? So, what's a chair? A chair is something I can sit on. So, all of a sudden, within chair, right, what's a chair? Well, a chair is something I can sit on. Oh, so part of this being a chair is that I can fit on it. So, what that idea starts, oh, so, so this isn't a chair necessarily. What it is is that I can conveniently project onto what I am perceiving to be something. I can project onto that the use value of chair. It can function as a chair. But to say it is a chair, like it is a chair, that's where Buddhism says, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Thinking that way, if you think what I think I'm perceiving could be used as what I think, you know, if you're careful with your thinking, that's a bodhisattva, where it's like, oh, no, no, no. It isn't a chair. 
It could be used as what I think of as a chair, da-da-da-da-da. In the same way I have dissected this, right? To say this is a bowl, to say that, really? Really? Because, and I've used this example a lot of times, what if I had, you know, a blowtorch and I started, and started flattening this thing out, this thing out. As soon as it, at a certain point, is it still a bowl? Is it, can you still call it a bowl? At what point does it become a symbol, right? Because it's flat. You see what I'm getting at? So to call this a bowl, no. It's something bowl-shaped. That might be slightly more accurate language to say it's bowl-shaped. Because then that's to say it could, it could be otherwise. You could flatten it out. Great. Great, Michael. So it, it's not a bowl. Ah, I thought it was a bowl, but now I recognize it's just bowl-shaped. But then you have to deal with that. It. It's bowl-shaped. What's bowl-shaped? It starts to get weird, right? <laughs> you start to realize that this is a language game for real. Wittgenstein was right. This is a bunch of words that we're mistaking for reality. That's what's going on. And there are many a sutra, Buddhist sutra, that will go deep into the role of language. That it's a, truly a language game. Chair is a mental projection of what I can use it for. It doesn't say anything about what it actually is. Right? Okay, everybody follow me. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. (laughs) So this is the... um, I've done this before. I'm just going to do it for those who haven't seen it. I could ask, what is that? I often ask, what is that? What is that? So... I, I, I suggest some lines, and you say, that's the letter A. What I'm going to suggest now to you, and again, some of you have seen this, but although I say A, the letter A, there's a way, a kind of secret way, a hidden way, a mysterious way, in which I've written that, but I've kind of secretly written I've kind of secretly written the other 25 letters of the alphabet just by writing one letter. So pretend that this is uh, invisible ink that you have magic glasses and you can see, right? And so I didn't really write them on the board. All I've written on the board is what you perceive of as the letter A. But what does that mean, to perceive that as the letter A? What does that really mean? And I've, I've suggested this before, to consider, like, a, you know, a, I mean, it's difficult in the modern world, but consider someone who has never encountered the English language at all totally ideographic, 
you know, Chinese, Japanese language, have never encountered letters, anything like that. If I put those three lines up on the board and said, what is that? Lines, <laughs> right? They, they don't know about this letter A of which you speak, right? So when you say, that's a letter A, what I'm saying is, is ah, yes, you've seen this, but you've secretly seen the whole thing. Because, and I, I've mentioned this many a time, in elementary school, you didn't spend the first grade just on the letter A. And then in the second grade, we'll get to B. You learned A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H as a concept. You learned the alphabet. You learned that this is one element of a matrix of understanding. And so whenever you see this, your mind sees it all. It can't see but otherwise. Unless you said, I don't know what that is. I, I don't know. Three lines? In that case, no, no, no. Yeah, you didn't bring with you all of that. But insofar as this is the letter A, it is also secretly the letter B. Secretly a C, D, E, F, G. Because again, you didn't learn these piecemeal. And I can't just go up to the alphabet and when nobody's looking, just get rid of X. <laughs> just get rid of it. Just take it out of alphabet. You can't do that. Because even though we learn them in pieces, what you have actually learned is a thought matrix. Right? And so every time you see one of these, you are actually seeing them all. It, does that, is that make sense? Right? So now follow this a little deeper because if what I just said is true, that when I write this and you conceive of it, perceive of it as a letter A, I've actually written all the other letters, well then haven't I also, just by writing the letter A, quote unquote, haven't I also then secretly in a hidden way produced all those, all the combinations of those letters? Because it's right there, right? The letter B and the letter E. So the, to be, all these things, they're all right there, right? Everybody follow me on that? So not only is there all the letters of the alphabet tucked secretly in each letter, it's all the words that could be formed out of that alphabet tucked into each letter. And not only that, but even though you don't know Greek, there is a way in which hidden, tucked inside this quote-unquote letter A is, whether you, again, know it or not, whether you like it or not, the origins of our alphabet are in there, meaning that the Greek alpha, the Greek beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, all of those, because where do we get the letter S from? The Greek sigma. Where do we get the letter B from? The Greek beta. So there's a way in which the Greek letters are in our alphabet, are in the letter A. And if we keep going down this road, then all, of course all the Greek words are there too. Every combination of the Greek alphabet, all of Plato, all of Aristotle, it's all in the letter A. You could keep going with this to where the very idea of language itself is in the letter A. 
the idea of communication, the idea of, it starts to go crazy. The amount that is inside just the letter A, right? Everybody follow me? Mm -hmm. And so I would suggest, <laughs> for those who have seen it, for those who have seen this before, you'll get it. If you haven't seen this before, I'll try to articulate, but I would translate the Pranyaparamita Sutra in one letter. Is that not everything? From what I just said. If only because, and so if you haven't seen my trick, I do this trick where I say, what is that? And it's like, ah, oh, it's a line, it's a this, it's a that. And then I do this trick where I go, no, no, no. What is it? And it's like, oh, it's the letter I. But then I go, oh, what is it? And it's like, oh, it's a number one. But you just said it was a letter I. Make up your mind. Is it a letter or a number? So if you follow that, You might understand why that is a fairly decent representation of the Pranyaparamita Sutra in one letter. Because not only is that a letter, it's got all the numbers in there too. So it has numbers, it's got letters, it's got all the words of the English language, all the words of the Greek language. And if you really wanted to start getting into it, I mean really wanted to start getting into it, I mean... That's it. It's all in there. All of it. So what I just did is a ma few major steps, okay? Because what happens is, is this, over 2,000 years, and not even that long, over really just probably 1,000 years or so, this idea of shunyata emptiness. When this idea first appears in the Pranyaparamita Sutras, Heart Sutra, for example, form is no different than emptiness, emptiness is no different from form. Definitely the Vajra's Diamond Sutra. When this idea first appears, there's a way in which it's... Um, it's just like having the rug swept out from underneath you. There's a way in which this idea just, just evacuates everything. Okay, because all of a sudden... I, you know, I took your bowl away. I took your clock away. I take, all, I take it all away, right? And kind of show how it's all conceptual nonsense. Poof, gone. And so there's an initial movement in Buddhism where there's this emptying out of everything. Emptying the self, the skandhas, you know, bowl, everything. Just boom, boom, boom. There's a moment at which that reaches a fever. Uh, I, I read a great sutra uh, a number of months ago where a bodhisattva gets so worked up about this emptiness idea, he, he goes charging and tries to kill the Buddha. Pulls out a sword and is like, well, empty it all! And, 
Anyways, it's a fun sutra. So there's a a moment where this reaches a fever pitch where people are trying to, we empty out everything. And there's that same moment in which Buddhism potentially gets a little dark, a little close to nihilism. It's like, whoa, you've just swept the rug out from all everything. Nothing's really, you're telling me there's no sentient beings. You're telling me everything's empty. So what happens is, is there's this uh, a movement of filling things back up. So you've emptied everything, but there's a process that happens in Buddhism where things are filled back up. And this is that filling back up. So, and this is what I mean by, I just quickly took us through these two big movements where I like took everything away and then quickly tried to give it all back to you in in a fullness way. And so the idea is, is like that initial step is the bowl's empty. Oh my God, that's a concept and da, 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 da. And so see ya, the bowl's gone. But if we go all the way with everything I was just talking about, there's a way in which, oh, this is a, this is a bowl of infinity. This is a bowl of everything. This could be anything. Hearing aid, right? A footstool, little hat, cup, any, you name it. Not the drinking cup, right? A protective cup. Any, any cup, or add that kind of cup too. So what this is, right? There's a way in which, and I've, this is where I've ended a lot of these talks, but to see a bowl and only a bowl is to have blinders on mental philosophical blinders that's like oh that's the bowl that's it period and i have just shown you how that's ignorant meaning not true right i've just showed you that it's not a bowl it's bowl shaped right so we take it away but then we give it back with this it could be anything. And so the blinders are removed, and that's a little scary potentially at first because there's a grand equalizing of everything. There's something in Buddhism that's beautiful about emptiness because it, it puts everything on an equal playing field, and I mean everything. Because within that world of emptiness, a piece of lint and Mount Everest are exactly the same size, shape, and color because they are equally ideas. They're equally concepts. And the idea of a piece of lint and the idea of Mount Everest, those ideas weigh the same. They're the same color, everything. It's only in the realm of clinging attachment that a piece of lint is insignificant and Mount Everest is so great. So there's initial stage where emptiness creates this beautiful level playing field. And, it, and it's level, you know, in a lot of ways. It's, it's why Mahayana is so steeped in egalitarianism, non-sectarianism, non-hierarchicalism. Because of this grand equalizing, they would be tremendous hypocrites to all of a sudden be saying, but, but male monks are kind of better than female monks, though, really. I mean, you know, really. That would be like, what? In terms of emptiness and this equality, right? So there's this equalizing, but then again, with this realization that 
each and every dharma contains all dharmas. That is the language of Buddhism. What a dharma is, not capital D, the dharma. It's, in, it's helpful to know that Buddhism talks about dharmas. And what a dharma is, a lowercase d dharma, is a, a phenomena. So the ignorant view is that this is a bowl. And that's it. And it's, you know, whatever, physical, made of brass, da-da-da-da-da, right? When I just showed, told you, showed you that bowl is being projected onto this, and it's not a bowl, but the mind is projecting onto it, bowl, that, that bowl, like, oh, hollow, I could drink out of it, bowl, right? So that projection, what is that bowl? So not what we think is, what is this bowl? In Buddhism, they call it a dharma. A concept or an idea, right? A chair is a concept or an idea, right? Follow me on this? So these concepts, ideas, are called dharmas. <clears throat> and what the, <clears throat> excuse me, what the Mahayana talks about, <clears throat> getting hoarse, so it's almost done. What the Mahayana talks about is every single dharma contains all other dharmas. And there's a way in which I was getting at that in terms of the interdependence. So my butt is a dharma. That is a concept. And chair is a concept. And they go together. Literally, they go together, but they go together in my mind. Meaning, if we weren't shaped like this, chairs wouldn't be shaped like this. The idea of a chair wouldn't be shaped like that, right? So the dharma, little d, concept idea, the little d dharma idea of a chair contains in it my ass, right? Or asses. It contains in it the notion of sitting down, the notion of comfort, all kinds of notions, all kinds of little dharmas are in the one dharma called chair. And in fact, according to the Buddha, if you keep going with this, any dharma you pick contains all other dharmas to the point where you could articulate that very beautifully by saying, thus have I heard at one time the Buddha was staying in Rajgriha, and he said, because that single, that single letter, that single idea, that single dharma contains all other dharmas, magically, secretly tucked inside of it, inside your mind. Because, of course, when I say secretly tucked inside of it, I mean it's tucked inside your mind, right? Just like the whole alphabet is secretly tucked inside your mind. And when you see representations of it, letter, it's because you have the whole alphabet that you can even decipher what these things are. 
questions, ideas, comments. That's it. 100,000 lines into a letter because each letter contains the 100,000 lines already, right? Mm-hmm. Yes? So we didn't really think about like babies that have no concepts that are just being. Are they like enlightened or...? It depends on who you talk to. Most schools of Buddhism do not, and I'm sorry you know, if this offends anybody, but most schools of Buddhism do not buy that animals are blissful bodhisattvas or babies or any of that. They actually think fully educated adults who have done meditation and penetratingly penetrated insight, those are, can be enlightened. Yeah, that there's a way in which babies are kind of, from a Buddhist perspective, there's a way in which babies have it better off than we do because they're not inundated with all these ideas and concepts of self and then selflessness and like, you know, all that's bound up in it. But from a Buddhist perspective, that does not make them enlightened. It just makes them sort of potentially suffering less. That makes sense. Yeah. Like you have to learn it's unlearn. Yes, Buddhism is very clear about this interesting notion that, you know, you've got your hell dwellers, your, your beings born in hell. You've got your beings born as hungry ghosts, which are these like specter-like beings in this dimension. You have beings born as animals. So those are the three lower rebirths in Buddhism. And then you have human beings, demigods, and gods. The idea is actually that demigods and gods can have whatever they want all the time. They live in their own basically like fantasy dream worlds that never get old. So they never suffer. And so they never encounter dukkha. They never encounter suffering. And so they never have any compulsion to get out of their fantasy. Animals and all the lesser beings can't hear the Dharma, like literally can't hear it. So they can't get hip to it and then wake up. But Buddhism says that the human realm is this unique experience that everybody has to go through to get enlightened because we kind of have one foot in suffering and one foot in the enlightenment. And we can draw on our enlightened side and we can then get propelled by our suffering side. Because again, like the gods, they're not propelled out of their fantasy. There's no reason to propel themselves out. We are sort of have a, a... a reason to propel us out of the suffering. But then again, we have one leg in the enlightenment already. That is how we get there. So, yep. Can I, can I add something to your letter A? Yeah. Um, in Sanskrit as in English, it's the first letter of the alphabet and also the, it's what you use to negate ah. things that come after. So like, Interesting. Anatman, a Sanskrit Yeah. Anisha. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you for that. Wow. Svaha. Uh, Yeah, that's it. Wow. Heart Sutra. Sutra in one letter. Yeah, that was a lot of ideas. How are you going to follow up on what? Follow up.